Welcome to Back in the Grind, a podcast about life, music, people, and the stories that bring us closer. I'm your host, Pepe, and this episode was brought to you by the Feds. Well, not exactly, but sort of. You see, I was sentenced to nearly five years in federal prison for a marijuana crime. While I was fighting my case before I went to prison, at a certain point I realized I had agency in my situation and had to make the most of it. So I decided to create a podcast back then. I was going to call it Preparing for Freedom. And I recorded 20 episodes. Half of it was me documenting my story, what I was going through preparing for prison, with my good friend, Ben Absurdo. The other half of the podcast was interviews I did with people who served time in prison and made it out successfully. For various reasons, that podcast was never released. But today, I decided to play one of the episodes. It's an interview I did with someone named Trey Johns. They were sentenced to over 12 years in a woman's prison for less than $500 worth of drugs. We explore many aspects of their life before, during, and after incarceration in this interview. My goal with these interviews before I went away was just to have a better understanding of what I was walking into myself, and then to hopefully share that with other folks who might be in a situation like I was. So in a way, I guess you could thank the feds who busted me and put me into a situation where I decided to do this. That period leading up to my incarceration was some of the most difficult time of my life. I can honestly say a few aspects of it were even more difficult than parts of being in prison. But I'm thankful for my friend Ben, who helped me talk it all out while I was going through it, and for the folks that let me interview him before I went away myself. I learned a great deal, and it was really beneficial for what I was going through. Hopefully you can find value in this interview as well. Enjoy this episode of Back in the Grind as I bring you closer to Trey Johns. Trey, I'd just like to thank you for giving us this time on on this podcast and, and sharing your story with us. And, you know, with that, would you want to just kind of start off and, and perhaps give us some uh, introduction into, you know, who you are and, and your life before incarceration? Well, my name's Trey Johns. I was uh, born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. When I was 17, I left high school in my last year because I, I was tired of being bullied and fighting and things like that. I just wanted to finish school, so I went to Job Corps, took my GED immediately and passed the first time and um, joined the Navy. And I stayed in the Navy, had a horrible service, and I was, was released in 1994. I was 19 years old. I became a veteran at 19 years old. I got an honorable discharge. I went to college. I went to Norfolk State University in Norfolk, Virginia. My sister was on drugs, and so she had four children. So by the time I was 21 years old, I was taking care of five children because I had one biological child, all under the age of eight. I went to Lincoln Land Community College. I played basketball in college. Then I transferred to Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. My brother got incarcerated, so I took his children, which at 26 had me raising eight children under the age of 12. I ran track, I studied pre-law, and I worked a full-time job, and I raised my kids. I've sold drugs off and on my whole life, and I had stopped, but 
times dictated that I needed some money at that time. So I sold about $500 worth of drugs to buy my kids' school supplies. It's not an excuse. It's the reason I did it. And I got indicted. Everyone was in shock. (laughs) The feds let me stay out on pretrial so that I could graduate from college. Five days after I graduated from college, they sentenced me to 13 years in federal prison for less than $500 worth of drugs. I went into Greenville Federal Prison in Illinois, about 45 minutes away from my home. I was there for about four and a half years. I became a jailhouse lawyer because I've never in my life wanted to do anything but be a lawyer. So just because I went to jail wasn't going to stop me from doing what I wanted to do, which was study the law. And honestly, it gave me an amazing opportunity to understand and create avenues for women that were incarcerated that they didn't think that they had access to anymore because one of my mantras was my civil rights didn't stop once the cell door slammed behind me. So I worked to ensure that myself and the women that were caged with me had at least the dignity of our civil rights. So that's just a little bit about my start. Well, it sounds, I mean, incredible that you were at such a young age caring for, I believe you said eight children at one point. Yeah. And then you were working and taking college courses and graduating from college. I mean, that seems like an incredible feat. First off, I'd just like to acknowledge you for doing all that under those conditions. You mentioned now you served time in in the federal prison. How long were you sentenced? I was sentenced 12 years, seven months. I served eight years, seven months, and 19 days because in 2007, the first crack law that was signed into law by President Obama reduced my sentence from 12 years, seven months to 10 years, one month. And so I served when I got released to the halfway house in 2011. The 2012, uh, the Fair Sentencing Act of 2010 gave me one more month reduction. So at the end, my sentence been, ended up being 10 years, and I served eight years, seven months of that, which is 87% of your time. And you mentioned becoming a, a jailhouse lawyer. And you know you talked about before incarceration, you were interested in law and in pursuing college. So I'm wondering, while you were incarcerated, what steps were you able to take to become a jailhouse lawyer? Because I knew and I was in disbelief of my own sentence. The first day I walked into a federal prison, I went to the law library and I was determined to go home. And that was it. You know, and people saw me literally in that law library from the day I got there with 10 or 15 books. And they came in and started asking me questions. And to me, it was it was easy. It was simple, but they didn't understand. So as I was working on my own case, I would help people. And I'm a nurturer by nature. So to me, just helping people was what I was supposed to do. And that's one of the things, one of my main things that I did as a jailhouse lawyer, I, um, I taught legal research, I taught legal writing, I held workshops on letters you needed to write to the court, to uh, 
keep parental rights because a lot of courts were sending women letters saying that they had to sign over their parental rights because they were incarcerated, which was not true. And so I helped a lot of women keep their children, keep their rights and stuff like that. And then I would sue the prison for prison conditions. I was in five different federal prisons. They would transfer me out. I was in one federal prison for four and a half years. And then the other four years, I was in four different federal prisons. Now, you mentioned women would come to you for legal help. Are there any other areas outside of legal help that you noticed women were struggling with while serving time? That's funny you say that. I taught everything in prison. I taught GD class. I taught math, science, reading. I taught legal courses. I taught boot camp for uh, two and a half years. I taught calisthenics. I weigh 115 pounds. I taught weight loss classes. I taught crocheting. I taught knitting. I taught anything a sister asked me to help her do or help her learn. Even if I didn't know how to do it, I would learn how to do it so that I could teach the class. And not only did I teach class, because I don't say I like to, I don't organize, I build leaders. So what I did was when I learned how to do something, I empowered someone else so they could teach a class about it. Because everything in federal prison is self-taught. And when I say self-taught, I mean by the persons incarcerated there. So if you had a class about credit or something, it's probably from someone who was a lawyer or a credit repair person on the outside or an accountant on the outside. And they would bring those skills and give back when they came inside. And so that's what I did. You know, everything that I knew and someone wanted to learn, hey, we, we taught, we even taught softball clinics. You know, we just helped each other. So there's a lot of help on the inside amongst the women there from what you're describing. I'm just wondering now for people on the outside who are trying to support a woman in prison, is there any specific things that you would recommend that they could do? I mean, communication is the key. It is woefully expensive and to and taxing to try to uh, financially support a person in prison. And it's so sad now because a lot of the federal prisons are banning cards, gift cards, cards like greeting cards and physical letters and books and things like that. And they're trying to force you to use the email system that you have to pay for, force you to use the video visit system that you have to pay for, and literally trying to shut off contact with people. So my advice to people on the outside is to continue to stay engaged. If you send your loved one a card and it comes back, don't just give up, you know, find out why, you know, start demanding that your loved one incarcerated be treated with basic dignities like getting a car for Christmas from their children. It's not, <laughs> we're not asking for like steak dinners delivered to these women once a month. You know, it's, it's like you're just asking for the basic dignity. You say to find out why perhaps a, a card might be sent back to you. Can you go a little more into detail into that? I mean, do people actually reach out to the prison? Like, who? How would they go about? Exactly. One one thing about 
any politician, warden included, is nobody wants their name in the funny papers negatively. And the most powerful person that an incarcerated person can have is somebody on the outside that cares about them. And if they call and ask that ward, well, why is it that, you know, I can't send a card to my loved one and they get some crazy response and they follow up and another person calls, or even if you only have one or two people questioning why, that can change an entire mandate of an institution. You know, because they had started in Waseca, Minnesota. They said that you had to, if you sent the card in, they would Xerox the card and just give the person incarcerated (laughs) a piece of paper of a Xerox card. And that's crazy. So we started calling. We had families calling and they stopped that. You know, they started letting the sisters get greeting cards again. And they always try to say it's because. Drugs get into the system, but come on now, we know all the drugs get into the system through the guards. So, now you just mentioned guards. I'm curious in in the prison that you were in, were most of the guards female or were they male? Was it a mix? No, they were mostly male. Almost ninety percent of the guards that I was guarded by in my ten years or my eight and a half years was was male guards. And what was it like for you and the other women there interacting with the majority of the guards being male? Like, what were those interactions like? Well, most of the interactions with me were contentious, you know, because I'm I'm a male identifying female. So, you know, men, they I'm not going to say they feel threatened, but they they constantly like try to assert their dominance. Or to try to remind me that, you know, I'm not a man or I'm, you know, something like that. Or or try to use my feminine pronouns in a way that's not like saying, you know, how you doing, miss, or something like that. But in a way that's like degrading to me, you know, so. You identify as a gay black person. Were there other ways that affected your time while being incarcerated? Yes, I was outspoken and I would sue the prison. I would sue guards individually. I would uh, write up guards. I would write up, uh, I would call OSHA. I would write up the ethics, write the ethics committee, you know. And so that made me a target. And I had a, when I was transferred from my first institution, it was because of a, a argument with a staff person. And so when I went to the next institution, it was like I was targeted for, threatening a, a officer but since i was only 115 pounds they didn't sh- want to like show that they were like afraid of me or something like that but i was treated you know like they were ready if i had tried something or if i had got into a fight or something they would have came and then they'd, they'd really tried to hurt me on the slide but i never gave them a reason to literally hurt me after i left the first institution They transferred me a lot, but they didn't physically hurt me. Being transferred a lot, was that in response to you standing up for yourself and and demanding rights for yourself and the other women around you? Yes. And is that a common thing that you see amongst other inmates who might carry out the same thing? Are they transferred often? Yes. I was transferred because I filed tort claims because I would write up 
guards, like I said, you know, and things like that. And and I don't stop. I'm going to take it to the highest level. I write Washington, D.C. And I also had a family that would call and check on me so that they couldn't throw me in the hole and lose me for a couple of years. I had people on the outside. My family, my husband and my son came to visit me every single week. And after the first year and the first four years, my husband came every month. He was 45 minutes away, sometimes twice a month, sometimes three times a month or whenever I called him up there. So I had family that came up there and they knew they would be held accountable for anything that happened to me. So having just having that family come see me every week and having money on my books all the time, that also kept, kept me safe from physical harm. But in the federal system, you know, I was 45 minutes away from home when they transferred me. They transferred me almost a thousand miles from my son. And I didn't see my son for two years. You know, I still saw my husband, but he couldn't make the trek with my son because I was all the way in West Virginia. After those first four and a half years. And then after they transferred me from West Virginia then they transferred me to Minnesota. And then I called myself behaving for a little while so that I could get transferred back to Illinois closer to my son. But no sooner than they transferred me back to Illinois, <laughs> I pissed them off and they transferred me to Connecticut. So I'm curious with being someone who's formerly incarcerated, and from what I understand, you know, the government does a lot to kind of label people and and almost i guess remove their identity right you become a number right your name right. you're not you they don't use your name they call it, they refer to you as a number and as you know we just said they refer to you as an inmate or a, a prisoner can you talk a little bit about that i i guess we could say dehumanization experience like what that is like going through that process and, and not being recognized you know as a, a full human being by the people who are incarcerating you? When you cease to individualize a person and you literally take five people, stand them in a line and call them by the same name, inmate one, inmate two, inmate three, you still call them by the same name. And you take away from who that person is, what that person needs and how that person should be treated. There should not have ever been a one size fits all criminal justice system because every circumstance is different. Every person is different and that needs not to be, you know, stated over and over and over. But at the same time, we use a returning citizen instead of felon. You know, I'm not a felon. I'm never going to classify myself as a felon. You know, I'm not, you know, a former inmate or a former prisoner. I, you can call me a former hostage. <laughs> I, I was a former hostage, but I don't see myself as I try. I even try to stray away from formerly incarcerated because I'm just someone who, you know, I went to prison years ago. So that label after eight years, why am I still dragging it around? Why can't I drag around the label? I'm a veteran. I'm a full 100 percent disabled veteran. Why can't I use that label? I'm a, I'm a college graduate. Why can't we use that label? But you want to use the most demonizing and the worst mistake that I made in my life to use that as my label. And I'm not going to continue to allow you to do that. Because now, in 2019, 
people who have been incarcerated have their own voices. We have our own platform. And the first thing we're going to do is make you change how you talk to me. And therefore, when you talk to me, you'll see me as Trey Johns and not a former prisoner or former inmate or a felon. Oh, this we got a felon coming in talking to our class. No, we got Trey Johns coming in talking to our class. That's what we have. So that's why language is important now. And within the, the prison itself, when the prison workers and any government officials are are labeling you with such language and terminology, I would assume that the women who were inside created other ways of communicating outside of that, right? Absolutely. See, women, one thing about women, if we don't, we don't form gangs, especially in the federal system. I've never been in state prison, you know, and that's a different, whole different animal. But in federal prison, you have maybe 200 women or 500 women in a prison that none of these women ever knew each other on the outside. So we don't have like allegiances to this block or this hood or this city or this neighborhood. And as women, we also don't separate mostly into racial demographics. We form families. We have mothers, brothers, cousins, uncles, daddies, you know, and we form those families in opposition to being called the same name, inmate this or inmate that. You know, nah, that's my mom. Hey, mom, you know, hey, brother, what's up, little sister? You know, things like that. Hey, dad, that's how we transform inside so that we can still be the nurturers that that we are or the protectors or whatever role or whatever role you play in life. You can still be that when you still have negative connotations by people that are supposed to be, you know, guarding you or protecting you or keeping you housed. Would you be willing to share a story about these families that, that were created inside that affected you in a positive way? Oh, man, I got right now today, Tynese Hall is my prison daughter. And I love Tynese like I gave birth to her myself. And in all my prison families, you know, I, I think right now I still got like four kids that are still inside and about 12 of my prison kids that are free, still in contact with them. But we would do things to make us feel normal. We would call each other children by their first names. We would celebrate birthdays with each other. And when I was in Greenville, the first federal prison I was in, we even had Sunday dinners together. You know, like old families did. We had grandmamas, the old school sisters that was there. We had the youngins come in. We had the, the, the mamas, the daddies, and we had Sunday dinners, just like we had when we were home, just like when you were in the South, just like when you went over grandma's house. You know, and those things, they kept us, they kept us okay. You know, it didn't make us whole when nobody wanted to be there, but it made it okay for the moment. I mean, one, I remember one time, I'll never forget, we we had a Sunday dinner and they allowed us to bring the speakers out because we were at a camp. My first prison was a prison camp. So we brought the speakers out and we were doing karaoke. And then we ended up playing hide and go seek. I mean, you got 35 and 40 year old grown women running around the compound playing hide and go seek, red light, green light, mother may I, you know, just doing stuff that we did 20 years ago and laughing and just having one of the most amazing times that I can remember. 
in prison. And I mean, and we had fashion shows and talent shows and plays and things like that. But that one particular time always stands out to me because by 8.30 recall, <laughs> all our old asses was in the bed sleep. <laughs> we were so tired. <laughs> Everybody was like, I ain't ran in 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, you know, it wasn't 100% terrible. But at any given moment, had they opened the doors and told us to go home, we would all ran home without hesitation. You know, but at that moment, we were, we were okay. You mentioned celebrating birthdays. Would you mind going into that a little bit? What was it like, whether it was for you or for someone else, to have a birthday in federal prison? Right. How was that celebrated? Well, people loved me. And my birthdays were always, oh my God, my birthdays were like a holiday. <laughs> Everybody would like want a VIP invitation to Trey's birthday party. And I knew people didn't have a lot of money and everybody knew that I loved chocolate candy. So I would tell people I want a candy bar for my birthday. So for my birthday, I would have like 80 or 90 candy bars on my bed. One time I had like 175 candy bars. Because candy bars only 65 cents at that time. So people would buy me a candy bar because they loved me. And we would have a party. And we would all buy commissary. We buy three, four hundred dollars worth of commissary. People pitch in and they would cook dinner and the sisters. And, you know, just like anywhere in the world, it's not about what you know, it's who you know. So you got a friend in the kitchen, they'll bake you a cake. You got sisters that work in the warehouse, they'll bring you up some extra vegetables and find some cookies or get some of the staff food and bring it over for your birthday. One time for my birthday, I had shrimp fried damn rice <laughs> with extra jumbo shrimp. And they said, you is doing too much in prison, Trey. <laughs> and everybody, it was like 212 people on the compound. And that day, once for my birthday, it was like 130 people in the gym standing in line for my birthday party. <laughs> and, and in other places, because that was just a camp, but in other places, like behind the wall, the women would decorate each other's rooms. You know, like if you're from New York, you, you know, you got some amazing talent in prison. So you could get someone to, they would draw a skyline of New York and cut it out and color it with poster boards and stuff like that. And they would, Hang up, you know, stuff like Diva and, and Gucci. They get stuff from magazines and have like Gucci purses and stuff taped all over the wall and shoes and stuff like that. Or a person like Superman. You, you know what I'm saying? Just a theme like that. We would do those little things for each other to celebrate our birthdays and just to try to feel normal. Like for Christmas, me, I was the type for my, my prison kids, I would sneak around. At the camp, of course, not in the, the uh, FCI, but I would sneak around on Christmas Eve and, and like wrap, I would buy them presents and stuff and I would wrap them up and put like a little fake tree in their room. So when they woke up the next morning, they would have presents like they were at home. You know what I'm saying? And they, they were surprised and they were happy and we kept each other whole like that, you know? So. You're talking about a lot of moments of creating happiness and and it seems like lots of fun and joy amongst each other 
and I'm assuming that's in response to the negative conditions you were in. So obviously it wasn't always parties and fun and happiness. Would you speak a little more on some of the more difficult times that you or other people experienced while serving time? Death in the family. I mean, you know, we all feel that. You know, like we had a sister that she lost her mom and the federal prison is so messed up or people lose their children and they don't even let you go. You know, they don't they don't offer you any type of furlough to go bury your child or bury your mom. And I mean, even at the camp, you have people that are low level. You, We had a 76 year old lady. They wouldn't allow her to go bury her son. And it's like, really? <laughs> so when you have times like that, or when you even when you have fights, or, or you know, which is is rare for fighting in women's federal prison, you might have one fight every two or three months, especially at a camp, because nobody wants to lose their camp status and go behind the fence. So even when you have difficult times like that, you, you still band together. You know, when people lose an appeal, that's like death. And you got court papers in, you hoping you get a reduction, you sitting on 20 years and they come back and tell you, hell no, that's trauma. And everything that we do to try to force ourselves to smile inside of a prison, it's in response to that trauma. You know, and that's not even counting the trauma by just being incarcerated or being around people that constantly try to degrade you or demoralize you because you know, some you got some guards that just talk to you like you're a person. You got some guards that are literally on a power trip. And they don't want you to, what are you smiling for? You in prison. Well, what the hell you want me to do? <laughs> so everything to me is in response to the trauma. You mentioned communicating with guards. Do you have any suggestions for dealing with guards? Is it something you should... Just be nice to the guards. Should you try and avoid them as much as possible? I mean, what is your take on how to to mitigate any of the negative effects that might happen there? Well, first thing, you you have to know who you're dealing with, you know, because there are some guards that you can sit, talk with, laugh and curse. And then there's some guards, if you say a curse word to, they want to lock you up, say you're being disrespectful. So my advice would just be to understand that you're in a capacity where you don't have eminent domain over nothing in your life, except how you respond. And, and that's the only thing that you really have. And unfortunately, federal prison mandates that you respond as an adult to any type of harassment or any type of trauma with no emotions. And that's difficult. And so my advice would just be to Learn who you can talk to and who you can't, and be careful. You said federal prison mandates how you respond. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, and not just federal prison. I mean, any type of authority like police, uh, jail, but I say federal prison because that's my experience incarceration. And what I mean is if a guard comes to my, if I'm walking and a guard comes up to me because he's having a bad day and say, hey, Johns, get your stupid ass over here. Stand here and hold one leg up. I'm I'm an adult, and I don't want, nor should I ever be spoken to that way. So, but I don't have luxury of saying, "Hey, don't talk to me like that." My name is Trey. I don't have that luxury. 
Now, I can do that, but I also have to understand that there could be negative consequences for standing up for myself. So in theory, whatever this guard says to me, whatever they do to me, I have to stand there and take it. Because with the understanding, though, if I respond, I could be hurt. I could be put in the hole. I could be written up. Everything negative could happen to me only for saying, show me some respect. And I'll never understand how men do it, how men have to be forced to not respond when you're when their manhood is being tested in while they're incarcerated. You know, because if they jump off with a guard, we know what happens. They get beat, they get put in the hole, they get extra time on their sentence. But we also know that there are guards that stand up in the faces of other people and yell and scream and call them names and degrade them and humiliate them and try to take their adulthood away. And we're supposed to not respond at all. When you first stepped into prison, was that something you were able to do to deal with that? Or is that something you learned as your time went on? For me, honestly, I thank God that. I was educated in college before I went to prison because had I not went to college first, I would probably still be in prison because my education allowed me to think first and understand that no matter what part of Chicago wanted to come out of me and bust one of these guards upside their damn head for talking to me crazy. The educated lawyer in me said, suck it up, buttercup, because the only thing going to happen is they're going to hurt you. They're going to take you away from your son. You're 45 minutes away from your son. This is the only federal prison in my entire area. Any other federal prison, I lived in Illinois. The other prisons at that time was in Connecticut, Florida, Texas, and California. Those were the only facilities that housed women. So I knew that if I said anything, a guard could have came and spit in my face and I wouldn't have said nothing at that time because it was so important for me to stay at that prison. But had I went before I went to college, oh, I would have never last two days in the, at a camp. I would have fought every day from the way that people talked to us and the way they tried to treat us, what the way they did treat us, you know. But I learned a mantra, I've been called worse by better. <laughs> you mentioned education quite a few times so far. I'm just curious, was there any specific uh, books or things that you read while you were serving time that, that had a big impact on you or even things you read before that period? Not really. I just love to read. I like like mysteries and I really like books that have like a main character, like James Patterson books with Dr. Cross and stuff like that or books that have like 25 and 30 other books and they only have the one main character. I, I like books like that, things like that. But there was nothing that in particular that I read that just changed the dynamics of who I am. I just use reading for leisure. And you served about, we said, what, a little over eight years? Yeah. Did you notice that 
as the time went on, it became easier to serve time? Or was that something that was... No, it became harder. It became harder. And can you it speak to why? It became harder with the realization that my son was growing up without me. You know, and the most difficult, the, the turning point to where I knew it was just the most horrible thing that will ever happen to me in my life is when I called and my son, his entire, his voice had changed. And I had went from being mommy to being mom. And, and that was, that was difficult, you know, and, and it didn't, not one day from my first day to my last day, it never got any easier. Never. Because I only wanted to go home because I knew there was no benefits of me sitting in a cage for nine years. For nobody. The system, the society, my family, nobody. Nobody benefited from it. It only caused hurt. So it was not all the time got easy. No, no. Every day was just didn't want to be there. With the restrictions of incarceration... How do people go about parenting? Like, what was that experience like for you and and maybe other women that were there with you? It's hard, you know. And some sometimes I used to call my son. I would call him every day. That got difficult, you know. I would try to, and when he was in, because he spent a couple of years in Chicago with my family before he moved back with his stepdad. But I would try to call him and help with his homework. You know, you only get fifteen minutes on the phone. And you only get 300 minutes a month. So just to try to talk to my son 10 minutes every day and then try to talk to, you know, like my mom and the other people in my family and stuff like that. It, it wasn't it wasn't easy. I couldn't do it. I thank God that my um my husband raised my son and my his family helped to raise my son. But it's it's not something because. You have to accept the fact that you can't live on the inside and the outside, no matter how great you are. And I think I'm a phenomenal damn person, but I had to realize that living on the outside of the prison was really hurting me more than just trying to survive mentally. You know. Do you so. would you say that the mental aspect the, the psychological aspect of serving time was the hardest aspect? Yeah, it's definitely the hardest aspect because, like I said, in women's prison, I wasn't worried about getting beat up, shanked, none of that shit. I wasn't worried about that. It was the separation from my son that was holding me every single day. And even now, eight years later, you know, it's still hard to know that I spent all that time away from my son. It, it still hurts. You know, it's still a psychological weapon. And it's a psychological weapon that my son used against me when his ass won his car note paid or something like that. You know, but it's psychological and it's trauma. I mean, that's what it is. It's trauma. You're speaking of of some of the issues and, and trauma that you faced after release. I'm curious if you'd speak a little more on that, some of the, the difficulties and some of the joys upon being first released. I was blessed. I was blessed beyond blessed because my halfway house was literally around the corner from where my son and my husband live. I mean, they could look out the back door and I could stand in the window and we could wave at each other. And so I had a place to go. 
you know, I had my second day from release, I had a job in 2011. Two months later, I was the supervisor of that job. A year later, I was making almost $65,000 as the first black engineer at Continental Tire. So it, but it wasn't easy because me and my son, when I left, he was six years old. When I came home, he was 15. And he was a 15-year-old angry black boy that had been raised by white people. So we had a very difficult first year or so together, you know, because I was born and raised in Chicago and my son was not. So because almost we think a lot alike, it was like living with a defiant version of myself. So it was very, very difficult for me and my son when I first came home and we had to get counseling. And we had to go through a lot with each other and then with the system and with the systems in place that were, you know, probation and parole and things like that. So it was hard. Like like I said, I didn't have the housing problem. I didn't have the job problem. I didn't have a financial problem. I only had the emotional and the psychological problem of trying to uh, rebuild a relationship with a baby that didn't know who the hell I was outside of prison, even though we stayed in very close contact while I was in prison. But my son have, has very few memories of me before prison because he was so young. Outside of counseling, is there any other strategies or or techniques that worked for kind of rebuilding that emotional connection that you're speaking of? I had to realize that I was the adult and that my son was hurt and affected by my incarceration just as much as I was. And we have to learn that we have to allow our loved ones that were not incarcerated, we have to understand that they still felt the brunt of our absence in their own way. So we can't just sit back and say, well, I was the one locked up. No, no, we were all locked up, you know? We were all in some form of incarceration. I was not the only person incarcerated. My son was locked up. My sister, my other seven kids, you know, they suffered because of my incarceration. So I I can't be selfish and be like, well, I was the only one locked up. I was the only one in the cage. That That's just not true, especially when you have people that love you. You know, we have to be compassionate to the collateral damage that comes from the choices and decisions that we made. And you brought up the point of people on the outside also serving time when someone is is locked away. And now upon return, you know, and you mentioned they suffered, did you have to apologize to them or do you feel like they've offered forgiveness? I mean, was that a given or was that something that had to be worked towards? Well, I mean, I apologize to my son like a million times and I'll probably apologize him till I die. You know, and and my other kids, too, because they, you know, even though they still had their parents or versions of their parents, you know, they still look for me as their only parent, their only support. And so they suffered a great deal with my incarceration also. So it's just, you know, like I said, we have to meet people where they at, because for a long time, my son wouldn't admit that my incarceration affected his life at all. 
you know, he was like, that didn't bother me. That was you that was locked up. And I'm looking at him like, boy, you all types of effed up. You know? <laughs> but, but he had to learn that he was. And now at 22, you know, we can we talk about how difficult it was for him and things like that. So we just have to meet people where they're at. It wasn't a matter of an apology. You know, just a matter of, you know, we got dealt this hand and we had to continue to play it the best way that we could. We could let it break us. You know, I can say my eight kids and none of them are incarcerated right now. None of them have felons right now. None of them. You know, and only two of them got kids. <laughs> so I did something right, you know, to try to break the generational curses of incarceration. You mentioned that you could let the situation break you, but it seems like in your case that didn't happen, right? Is that Would that be fair to say? Right. So exactly. is there any specific things that helped you maintain that strength, whether it was during or after being incarcerated? Like, are there any particular things that you do to care for your own psychological and mental well-being and your own overall health, you know, moving forward to allow you to remain as strong as you do? No, <laughs> that's just it. No, I don't. I just keep going and going and going, you know, at 43, you know, it took me a while, but a few years ago, maybe in the last decade, I realized that the only thing I'm supposed to do here on this earth is help other people. That's all I've been doing since I started raising my little brother when I was five years old and he was 10 months old and I taught him how to walk. And it just keeps me going, knowing that I have too many people depending on me. And even going through prison, I was on pretrial also. And people like, oh, my God, you're facing all this time. You should run. No, because if I run, then the people that look up to me and the people that are depending on me are going to be let down. So most of what keeps me going is the fact that I don't want to hurt other people if I give up. You know, like now my wife and I got, I just, we just got custody of a 10-month-old baby. And my niece, uh, one of my favorite nieces, she's moved down here to Florida with me. You know, I can't just give up. And Tynice in prison, she's waiting on me to file her First Step Act in the next couple of days. So it's it would be selfish of me to say, oh, I'm going to take a month just for myself. And people tell me do that all the time, but that's just not me. That's not who I am. I, I've literally learned that I've been put here to help people and to do what I can for other people. And it's always been at the detriment to myself. It's always been at the detriment to my health, at the detriment to my mental and psychological well-being. And I'm a little bit better about it, but not much. Because even if I don't get any sleep right now, if somebody called me from Nebraska, I'd be on a plane tomorrow. And that's just the type of person that I am. You know, last year I was in 101 different cities and I, I didn't even have a job last year. I did not collect a paycheck at all. But I was all over this country helping other people. Before we close here, would you be willing to just take a moment to maybe speak directly to any other women who might be on pretrial or facing incarceration and are nervous and anxious about what might end up happening? Well, yes. 
my sisters, if you're going into federal prison, don't go into federal prison with the fear that someone's going to hurt you or things like that, because typically that doesn't happen. People always say, stay to yourself. That is so not in the nature of women. It's impossible to do time by yourself, and you shouldn't want to. You know, you need someone to talk to. I, When I served time, there were people that I walked around the, the yard with and talked to them for three or four hours and only talked to them that three and four hours one time in my whole life. Reach out to people. Women are nurturers. And if you're an older woman, you can reach out to the youngest sisters. If you're a younger sister, reach out to the older women. You know, it'll be somebody there. And and granted, granted, there are scams. It might be somebody there that's nice to you, so you could spend some money on them. But there will be people that will be there to support you, help you get through, give you a hug when you're crying, you know, because that's just it's just what we do as women. You know, it's not something to fear. You don't have to figure out how to put a lock in a sock and all that other trash that they try to tell you on TV and stuff like that. Those things typically don't happen in women's federal prison because you got a whole bunch of women that just don't even know each other. And they just trying to survive together. Thank you, Trey, for sharing your story with us and, and taking the time to be on the podcast. Thanks for checking out this episode of Back on the Grind. If you enjoyed it, please leave a rating or review on whatever platform you listen on. It helps the show grow and expand, and it helps us get even more guests that you want to hear from. If you want to support the show additionally, consider joining our Patreon. You can get exclusive bonus material and some goods from us in the mail. You can sign up at patreon.com slash backonthegrind. There's a link in the episode show notes. Also, if you're happening to be listening on Spotify, you can leave a response to any episode that we have. We read every one of them, and it helps us get to understand what you like and want more of from this show. Stay free until next time.